0: I've worked with so many of the nonprofits in Tucson who were, who got, whose fundraising just stopped. When I moved the campaign online, what I started to do was, was do Zoom interviews of their CEOs and get them to give them a chance to talk a little bit about their fundraising needs. And all I did for the campaign was start off by saying, I, I am a candidate for CD2, but that's not what this is about. This is about, you know, this organization and the need their needs so and the CEOs would tell them a what services they provided for the community and how people specifically if they gave money how how that money would be would be used. I heard more than once it's weird for a Republican to be, to be doing this. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all... What goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Well, welcome to 80proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. And today, yet again, we're broadcasting from self-isolation and social distancing mode. And while I'm here in Alexandria, Virginia, our guest for today is in the District of Columbia. And he just recently returned to the district having spent the past several months in his hometown of Tucson, Arizona, running for Congress. With that, I want to welcome Shay Stotts. Cheers, friend. Cheers, my friend, Bill. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, glad you could be with us. You know, you spent so many years as a higher education advocate. I wanted to start by asking you, was there anything in particular from that wealth, wealthy experience? that informed how you went about running your congressional campaign? Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, it, it, it formed a, a major, uh, major component of why I wanted to run and then it helped inform how I executed the, the campaign itself. Uh, for, for your listeners though, I should, we should probably just upfront recognize that I was in, um, I was in Arizona the last uh, 10 months and for the last five months straight, Uh, executing the campaign that I launched in July of last year and um, uh, and of course part of the the those five months straight that I was uh, over the last few months I've been stuck in Arizona Um, I shouldn't say it that way I only say it that way because I was separated from my lovely wife uh, for that time and part of that time was at her insistence because of the emergence of COVID-19 and the other time was we weren't traveling, right? We were all locked down in our, in our homes. And that started in Arizona in the, the first week in March. But um, so I ultimately, so that we don't have suspense going on here, I withdrew from the race three weeks ago. And I'll talk a little bit about why that is. That won't surprise too many of your uh, well-informed listeners. But um, so how did my higher education advocacy both uh, inform my desire to run and how did it inform how i executed uh, it's actually quite well linked so uh or quite connected the in in southern arizona in tucson's my hometown as you know and I, I worked for the university of arizona there for 11 years and it's it's been a bit of a family tradition my mother worked there my two sisters also worked there my one of my sisters still works there and um and i worked there up until about three years ago and uh so the you you know university and higher education is is in in the stouts family blood and um and because of that i was already a a passionate advocate for uh, the university system and then for the university itself i start started there in in uh in 2006 and uh I just believe in the mission, and and th- this is the same community that you and I both come from, and uh, so the benefits and the and the contributions to society by higher ed are manifest. We both uh, know them very well, but we have a we have a continuing challenge in communicating this to to our communities writ large, and especially to uh, to voters. So I decided that part of the rationale for me to, to jumping into the race was to help promote the the hometown institution that is the University of Arizona. It also happens to be the largest employer in all of Southern Arizona with seventeen thousand jobs, and that was a key point that I uh, I I promoted uh, constantly. It surprised everybody, and uh, and it's you know while while it shocks me that it surprised people, it. Uh, it uh, It's part of our challenge in helping promote higher ed. Let me just say that, that uh, the techniques I used on Capitol Hill to promote and advocate for the university actually were very similar to those that I used on the campaign trail. So both higher ed uh, proved to be uh, a strong part of the inspiration for my campaign, and then I used several of those, uh, the same advocacy techniques out on the campaign trail itself. What was your most prevalent Technique. So the uh, so we all know as as higher education advocates that that you have to connect the contributions and the and the needs of higher of the higher education community or or a specific institution like the U of A or or maybe uh, the University of, of, of Texas and uh, to those issues that your policymakers care about, right? And so and this is not specific just to uh, Arizona but we know that our policymakers on both sides of the aisle care about jobs and so when you talk about the jobs that our institutions have uh, currently and their potential for contributing to the economic growth of your community that brings home those connections uh, I think I think very well and uh, and so I did that on Capitol Hill. talked about the importance of jobs and, and the, the economic growth that the that the universities inspire, and produce. and um, And I found that I needed to do exactly the same thing in the community as I engaged with uh, constituents and voters. They uh, they didn't seem to realize on the surface about the about the number of jobs that the university you know uh, 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 provided in our community. And nor did they have a clear understanding of the economic growth that uh, that uh, spinoffs and other kinds of and, and just just sheer spending, as we all know, uh, you 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 get you get a very significant amount of research federal research dollars spent in Texas as a result of the research universities there. Uh, for the University of Arizona, it's about uh, six hundred and fifty million a year. And every time I would say that uh, in public. I could tell that my audience was surprised. And so um, uh, the same, same techniques in, in both places proved to be uh, very effective, I thought. Yeah. And not only the research aspect of it, but there's always that economic development value add of the additional brain pattern. Look at all the studies that talk about how much more successful people are throughout their lifetime if they have a college education. Oh, yeah, the, the iconic million dollar more of, yeah. of, of, of wage, wage earnings over the lifetime. And of course, it goes way beyond that, too. As, as you know, uh, college graduates are, are uh, much, much less likely to need any kind of uh, uh, government support of any kind. They're much less likely to be ill and, uh, and, and need uh, government support for health care. And of course, they, they tend to stay out of prison and uh, And that's a good thing and uh um you know i I found that the that audiences really you know you, you're getting a little bit too into the you know it, uh, the academic argument you know, when you start to talk about studies and and the evidence shows over a lifetime that this is what happens they they really do identify very directly with the idea of jobs though and and if you take a university like like the u of a and say there's seventeen thousand Direct jobs there, and um, and then you connect that to the hundreds of, of thousands of small business jobs that connect that connect in the, in that second order with with the primary employer. This fit in with a very large narrative that that or larger narrative that I found worked really well. People did not want me to lecture on the value of higher education, and, and you know you know me I. I, I can get into a little bit of a luxury mode when it, when it comes to something I care about. I also used to talk about our national security uh, uh, industry footprint in Southern Arizona. We have two major bases: an Air Force base and, a, and an Army, an Army base, as well as the largest missile manufacturing plant on the planet in Tucson. And I found that people's eyes glazed over when I talked about the contributions to national security that those installations made, but they really connected when I started to talk about the individuals that worked at those institutions and the number of jobs they provided to the community. In this in this case, 13,000 for Raytheon missile systems and 11,000 each for the two military bases. And I want to circle back to all of the great work you've done for the defense industry, uh, for the... Of the Arizona community at large because of the defense industry there. But you've touched on something, and that's a great segue. You've touched on something that I wanted to ask you about because, you know, in higher ed, as in almost all forms of advocacy, there's an element of time spent on building grassroots, building a community of support around the policy initiatives that matter the most, and then going out and using that support to help promote a policy agenda. That, at essence, seems like a congressional campaign. Oh, you yeah. Grassroots, group one, right? That's right. Right. Actually, a lot of the same techniques that I, I feel that you use to be an effective advocate for an institution like a university in your hometown community, or, or your the community, I should say, it doesn't necessarily have to be your hometown, it was for me. Um, uh is exactly the same kind of things that you need to be doing to set the basis for a campaign in the first place. And so a great example of that is, uh, our R2, um, uh, the military installations, the Army Base and the Air Force Base that I just, I just mentioned. Uh, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base has a community sport group called the DM50. Um, it's a little bit more than 50 people uh, and, the, and, the, and Fort Huachuca down in Sierra Vista, a little bit closer to the border. Has a similar community sport group there. And one of the w- ways that I was able to promote the university's interests within the community was by engaging those two community sport groups and also bringing them here to Washington to engage with our congressional delegation. I did that for eight years. We, we led an annual trip up to Capitol Hill. We're all familiar with what those look like to make sure that the contributions of those military installations, both to national security and to the local economies, were very clear to our congressional delegation. And uh, in many cases, we also had very specific asks in the in the NDAA or the defense appropriations process as well. and And through that process, and that really benefited the university, the university was seen to be contributing to the economic life of the uh, community that way and also promoting the interests of, of those folks that cared about those military installations. But it also helped me lay the groundwork for why I wanted to run and to show to a very important sector of, of my community in southern Arizona that I had the expertise and the experience to do that. So you spent past several years on the board and as D.C. advisor for something called the Arizona Defense Alliance. Is this that same group you're talking about? Yeah, it is. Actually, it's the Southern Arizona Defense Alliance. Southern Arizona Defense Right. right. And, and yeah, that's exactly the group. That actually happens to be an umbrella organization of the community support groups that include uh, Davis-Monthan Air Force Base and the and Fort Huachuca. It also includes our Yuma installations on the other side of the state. Um, uh, along the California border so um, um, and, th- and through that by advocating on behalf of SATA and with SATA here in DC I was able to connect in with the interests of uh, folks like former chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee John McCain uh, Martha McSally a current Republican senator and sitting senator on the Senate Armed Services Committee uh, and, and and others at one point at one point up until just a, uh, up until the the end of the last congress Arizona had 5 of its 11 total members of congress the total congressional delegation on the armed services committee and one in either the house or the senate wow yeah and really truly a significant portion so when i talk about you know to your earlier question how do you advocate on capitol hill for higher ed well you find ways to connect higher education in with the 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 core interests and and committee assignments of your congressional delegation. And with with almost forty five percent of our congressional delegation on the Armed Services Committee, it was important that the university show a strong support and connection to our national security installations in the state. And that's that's how we did that. Also happens to be a passion of mine too, so it worked out great for everybody. Yeah, did this organization exist long before you started, or was this something that just came into being through Actually, you? I joined it on its, I think, on its third meeting uh, at the request of Senator McCain. He, he called and said, Shay, you know, this group is, is starting to pull together. Uh, I want them to be successful, but they can't just, just work in Arizona. They need to understand how to engage and support us on Capitol Hill, and you're the right guy to help them do that. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S have to be American built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnerships YouTube channel. Very good. So I want to shift just a little bit because you're also a little unique in the higher ed world of having worked for the two major institutions within the state back-to-back. Right. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I'm sure there are different cultures, and I'm sure they had different needs and aspirations. In fact, I, I know they do from personal experience. But I'm just curious about how, not necessarily why, but how you made that transition, having spent so many years with your hometown school, a place where you went to college for a while, and then a major shift to, at least on the athletic field, <laughs> That's a great question, thanks, Bill. And I, and I, by the way, the the your your subtlety in using the word unique uh, in reference to me is not lost on me, my friend. I think <laughs> you're uh, you you you've got a future in diplomacy as well as uh, as your current endeavors. The uh, uh, but you're right. So so for your listeners, what I did was I spent 11 years working for the University of Arizona in Tucson, and for uh, for decades, the uh, U of A was the research institution in the state of Arizona. And unlike many states, including yours, we only have three public universities in Arizona. We don't have, you know, in some cases you have a dozen, right, and, and, um, and in your case, you have at least two major systems, if not, if not more, and ours is, is not really organized like a system although all three public universities do sit under uh, one common uh, board of regents. So uh, for many years, uh, well, for 50 uh, 50 to 70 years, the University of Arizona was the major research institution in the state, but uh, under the leadership of Michael Crow at Arizona State University, they have come up, uh, they have grown in remarkable ways in recent, in, in, uh, in the last 15, 16 years to grow their research portfolio too. And so now you have two major research institutions in the state. And so up until uh, 2016, I, I from 2006 to early 2017, actually, i worked for Arizona, uh, University of Arizona, including opening up and running their DC area office. Uh, and then uh, uh, at the end of uh, February of that year, uh, you know, on March 1st, I went to go work for Arizona State University and to your point, truly remarkably different cultures in both institutions uh, and different styles of of leadership, both historically, but also specific to the current leaders at the time. And um, uh, I found that that I developed a, a strong sense of persistence and patience when working at the University of Arizona uh, something I didn't really need that that much at Arizona State University. Boy, boy talk about diplomas. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> the um, uh, you know projects and and initiatives, and I like to be a I like to be an innovator, and 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 that's an that's an aspect of my personality and and work style that actually fit. Um, the disruptive, innovative style of Dr. Crow at ASU much better than it did the uh, leadership at the U of A that I was working with at the time. And well, I think uh, you've got think so you new on, ideas. I think you've touched on the heart of my next question. So if I can just you know, okay, because I was curious if you could draw a, a comparison, an objective comparison between the different approaches to advocacy that each institution utilized. Uh, well, that's an interesting, that's a very interesting question because it gets to the heart of, well, how, how much is, are you as a, as a, as an advocate, how much are you influencing how policy is made at your institution and then how it, how it's executed. And, um, and so that's where your institution's leadership comes in. Come, it, 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 it leads directly to the question how much access do you have to your institution's overall leader. You know in some institutions people are working directly for the president or the chancellor and um and in other cases you're separated by several layers of of other um of other leadership other policy uh, leaders and you don't know how much is actually directly coming necessarily from the president in those cases so great it's a great question gets really gets to the subtlety of what we do in this community i'll tell you in uh, both cases, at the, at, the, at, at the University of Arizona, I had, up until my last four or five years there, I worked directly for the president. And the president, in those cases, gave me a lot of leeway in terms of deciding the most effective ways to approach uh, Capitol Hill and to uh, get things done there, including what to take. Because you know that's, that's half the battle. If you take every issue that pops up uh, that could have a federal connection, Then, uh, then your effectiveness uh, and execution rate goes way down. If, however, you pick and choose those things that are most likely you're most likely to have an impact on, then uh, your your effectiveness rate goes way up. I will say just to to close that loop on on uh, in in Arizona State's uh, institution or institutional case, I was fortunate to work for former Congressman Matt Salmon, who. who most of our colleagues will recognize was a strong champion, even though he was a member of the Freedom Caucus and the uh, Tea Party before that, he was a strong advocate for NIH funding and a lot of us relied on him for help and support uh, uh, on that particular issue. So have, working for, working directly for a, a, uh, an immediate former member of Congress helped a lot. And by the way, and I loved this part of it, Talk about a guy who knows whether I was doing my job right or not. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that's another thing. When we when we have these jobs, are if we're not reporting directly to the president or or whoever we happen to be reporting to, they might not know actually what it is that we're doing and whether we're doing it right or not. Yeah. And uh, in Matt's case, he sure did, and I loved that part of it. I wasn't sure I was gonna, but I did. Well, yeah, having known Matt a bit, I I wouldn't expect to answer negatively to this but did you ever feel like you were being second guessed no 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 matt was a that's you know and it's that's one of the hallmarks of we've talked about leadership in the past i think it's, it's part of the one of the hallmarks of leadership is you uh is you you go out hire the best possible people you can you trust in their expertise and you let them run and if you uh and we've all known Folks who who do, do that second guessing, but if you do that too much, you lose you lose the best people from your teams. So oh, you absolutely do. In fact, it reminds me of a comment that one of my previous guests, Brenda Becker, made because she worked for Dick Cheney in the White House for a while as legislative affairs head. And she said, Here's a guy who woke up first thing in the morning and got a national security briefing, and of course had all of these great ties to Capitol Hill that when she would go in and talk to him about what was happening, he'd never interrupted. He never said, Oh yeah, I know that. I know that because he wanted to not only empower her, but there might be something he would learn a little nugget. He'd learn there. And she said that was a great example of leadership that she didn't anticipate. Right. Right. So let's, let's shift here for a sec and talk about your path to glory and we'll get back to where we started with this conversation. But you, if I have this right, you don't have an uncommon story about getting immersed in the federal policy arena in that it started with a summer internship. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So many years ago now, I'm, I'm uh, hesitant to even try to put a date on it. But uh, yeah, 1989. I actually took a uh, legislative internship with, with U.S. Congressman Mo Udall. Yeah. Yeah. Amongst our most liberal and progressive members of Congress, historically, and uh, um, uh, and I will admit, he I actually tried to get an internship with U.S. Congressman Jim Colby, an Appropriations Cardinal, Republican moderate Republican, and uh, and he had the district that I uh, lived in, but uh, he didn't have any uh, internship uh, availabilities for me at age uh, twenty uh, or maybe nineteen and a half, I guess, and and so. Uh, Colby's office suggested I try Udall's office because they still needed, needed somebody. And so that's where I went. And I was the only Republican on his staff. <laughs> and that became crystal clear. I, um, I was very naive. I actually thought it was my job to argue with them. to <laughs> <laughs> try to convince them uh, that I had, you know, that I had the right perspective on things, including national security. And boy, did I learn, uh, I learned pretty quickly that that wasn't the job of an intern. <laughs> no, no, that isn't. That's a great point. You, you bring up national security, and, and you talked you referenced this earlier. You've always had an interest in this. Did this start from that internship? Actually, it started well before then. In fact, the, the, my, my interest in, in Washington and in Congress in particular uh, started at about age 12. And, uh, you know, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And wow. um, so I was very interested in that. My parents always thought it was very, very strange. My, uh, my, my mother worked for the U of A as a senior administrator. and My father uh, taught English and coached basketball and baseball and golf at Sarita High School, which is just south of Tucson. Neither were p- very particu- particularly politically involved. But I, I suspect, although we never really quite talked about it. I suspect that they both leaned a little bit more to the Democratic, probably conservative Democratic side. But I do know for a fact they all thought it was strange that their 12-year-old son considered himself a Reagan Republican. Well, What's strange about being interested in global affairs and SALT treaties and all that? (laughs) And for a 12-year-old, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I guess, well, hey, good to know that there are more people out there like that. (laughs) I just haven't found very many of them. But, and then, when you did your internship, you was that what uh, just put the bug in your blood, and that's why you transferred to Georgetown? That was the nail in the in the coffin, as in terms of that being what I wanted to focus on for uh, for my uh, for my, my the rest of my life. The uh, uh, the defense LA for Mo at the time, and I, I don't actually remember his personal details, but for some reason. He uh, had to leave the office right in the middle of my internship, my my four month internship with the congressman, and um, and the, so the, the chief of staff came out of his office one day and said, "Who here wants to uh, pick up the slack on national security issues?" And um, I almost ran over uh, uh, everybody in my path to get to get <laughs> that job, and and I still have, believe it or not, I've been you know up on Capitol Hill here, I've been going through. You know, I've been using part of the quarantine or the, the shelter-in-place time to go through old, old papers. And I'm, I'm still finding defense news and uh, other, and, and actually, you know, publications from my time on Capitol, you know, from my time in the House as an intern. So, uh, I was very pleased to do, you know, you give interns these kinds of responsibilities. I wrote the press release when the Navy commissioned the USS Tucson. Mm. Los Angeles class tax sub and I think it's since been decommissioned that's how how old I am now but uh, <laughs> uh, but that's how I got my start and my passion. I, didn't know, I didn't know they were still uh, commissioning three mass free so. <laughs> thanks Bill I, I, <laughs> I refuse to mention that I think perhaps you might even be a little bit older than me <laughs> yes Absolutely right. So what did, what did you do after you graduated from Georgetown? Oh, so basically, uh, that, that, uh, to, to fill in one, one, one small gap there, I, I took that internship when I was enrolled at the University of Arizona. Yeah, okay. Came to D.C., uh, worked for uh, Mo Udall as an intern, and then took an, an internship that translated into a, a, an aid position with U.S. Senator Robert Kasten from Wisconsin. So basically, in Mo's office, I discovered well every time I I foolishly advised him to vote for additional nuclear aircraft carriers, for the B-1B bomber, for the B-2 bomber, for the MX and the Minuteman missiles to bring up an old nugget. Oh yeah, uh, he he of course said no to all of those things, and uh, so I discovered okay maybe I need to go work for a member of Congress that whose whose positions I. I'm, I'm I'm more passionate about. So I went to go work. Do I I this for right? that yeah. was a UA alum. Yeah, he's a U of A alum wow. too. Yeah, yeah. And so I went to go work for him, and then from there, uh, uh, one you know, after several months with the senator, he he said to me, he said, Shay, you know, you're, we we love you here, but you don't you don't have a college degree. You know, you need to go, you know, get one of those." And so I transferred from the University of Arizona into Georgetown where I got two degrees, the first in government and the second a uh, master's in national security studies. And so um, that has all built my, my history and my expertise in that particular area. Uh, uh, it's, it's funny, on the campaign trail, and we'll, we'll talk about this when you want me to, but there were uh, uh, more than one comment about, well, uh, you know, what is a master's in national security? And, 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 and why would you need something like that? Uh, to serve in Congress, something that it started it spurred some really good conversations. I'll tell you. i mean, it did. I think mean, that would have been a great opening. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now you you've gotten your BA, and you've gotten your master's. What you do right out of grad school? So so by the time I got I finished my master's, um, I wanted to go back to the Senate and be okay. a defense LA in the Senate, and uh, but but uh but Senator caston had an uh, had an election in the interim, and unfortunately, uh, from my uh, position, he had lost and so that put as you know, that put maybe fifty other defense l a positions that you know were at least theoretically possible for me to apply for, and so I spent several months really working hard to try to get a, a position as a defense l a and it wasn't it wasn't working out so, you know uh, sometimes the, your timing is uh, quite perfect, and so I went from there to go work. Joined a, a niche uh, appropriations defense lobbying firm, which is which was fantastic. I spent nine years working for defense companies on Capitol Hill as a contract lobbyist, specifically focused on appropriations. And um, and so and what was on the name part, of that firm? It was called Collins and Company. That's not Frank Collins, is it? No, 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 no. Okay, that that would have been too early. So Richard, Richard Collins and Jim Bond uh, were, you know, led that firm. Richard had been a staff director for the Senate Appropriations Defense Subcommittee. And uh, uh, and so from those two gentlemen and from my time on the Hill working with, uh, with uh, Senator Stevens and Senator Inouye in particular, I learned the fine art of, uh, of appropriations law. Hmm. And it's from, from that spot, from that, that seat, that the University of Arizona actually called me and said, Shay, you know, we, we need someone that understands how Capitol Hill works, how the appropriations process works. We need you to bring your expertise to bear now on uh, our higher ed agenda. Have you been working with the university through college? Not as a client, I've been helping them pro bono over the years on, on spot projects, particularly where they, where they involved appropriations funding. Uh, on issues like, uh, mostly with NASA issues and their research agenda with NASA. And at the time, and and probably up until, you know, pretty close to the current day, they were the largest NASA science-funded university in the country. Yeah, I think that's still the case. Yeah. So were, uh, had they had a D.C. presence before that? They had, uh, they had a, a campus-based uh, individual who came to DC but not all that frequently. She did a great job and um, and she she did she did what what uh, the president back then asked her to do. Uh, she was not a uh, she hadn't historically spent time working in the in you know either on in Congress or on national policy so it was like so many of our institutions she'd been tasked to get involved do what she could. But, um, but basically, when they came to me, they said, all right, well, now now we need a professional, somebody that's, that's done this. Um, well, that was during that period when more universities were establishing footprints in Washington. So exactly. that coincided very well with the title. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I, I, at the U of A, I was based in, in Tucson on campus for most of that time. And that's, we've talked in the past before, I think some, some time being based on campus is critical. Yeah, or us in our community to do the best job that that we can, but um, but it really depends on the circumstances of the institution. Yeah, I agree. absolutely right. All okay, right, so we talked about your time at UA, we talked about your time at Arizona State. What drove you to the public service calling and wanting to run for Congress? So um, and that's really the the heart of of the question so, so for your for your listeners, I'm uh, I'm a Republican. I'm, I ran as a Republican in Southern Arizona, and you know why do I why do I make that clear as part of this answer? In 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 our party in particular, we struggle to to make clear the benefits of higher education to to you know an increasing number of Republican policymakers who are challenging us on, on where the funding goes and and in, and and in particular why you know, from their perspective, why should the public, why should public taxpayer dollars be going to support institutions who, who might have a liberal bent or a liberal predisposition and even worse, communicating that to our, to our nation's students through, uh, through their on, on campus classwork. And, uh, you and I both know that there is not a, you know, there is no there there is no master conspiracy you know for from you know on the part of universities to indoctrinate students into one uh, political predisposition or another and uh so one of the reasons i i wanted to get into this race is to continue my advocacy for higher ed and especially in those intersections between higher ed and national security but uh but to make clear that that about the contributions that these institutions make in our communities and in our in our you know to our nation so that that was one thing and i and i can tell you the conversations i've had not just you know historically with members of congress about about this conservative versus liberal um, question but with voters and constituents by the end of those conversations inevitably i find that they that that um that folks come around that they get it. They, they can be, they can be. This is an issue that we can win on. We just need to engage on it. And right. that's part of why I got into the race. The other issue that I, uh, the other reason I got into this race was uh, because, as, a, as you know, after having been the lobbyist for the University of Arizona and then Arizona State University in, in, our, in, our, in our great state of Arizona, I knew our congressional delegation. And in particular, I always told myself that I wouldn't, I wouldn't get into a race. I wouldn't run unless I, was, unless I saw some things happening that I knew I could do better on. And in Southern Arizona, and I don't, this isn't a campaign commercial for me, I'm out of the race now, but the sitting member uh, I had known for a long time. I had engaged with her on higher ed issues. I've engaged with her on national security issues numerous times never made much progress in enlisting her support uh, for the causes that I'd engaged her on. And I knew I'd found that moment where I knew I could do better. And so uh, that's why I got into the race at the time I did. So at the time of this recording, we are towards the end of May, we're three months into dealing with the coronavirus. That has to have its own unique impact on a congressional campaign. But Absolutely. why did you choose this time to drop out of the race? So, great, great question. So, the, the, um, now I actually dropped out of the race about, uh, three weeks ago, so early, early uh, to mid April, after having been, uh, having Arizona had, you know, each state sort of locked down at separate times, um, uh, in rolling waves across the country. Arizona lockdown in the, the uh, at, at the end of the first week in March, hmm. and that's important because when you think about a, 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 a congressional campaign, and when you understand the role of the national party, so in my case, the National Republican Congressional Committee, uh, they look at at your uh, fundraising and engagement in your in your committee in your district on a quarterly basis. So if you think about the first quarter. January through March of 2020. Well, we lost a third of that quarter by, sh- by Arizona shutting down the, you know, in the first week, right? Then it became clear from, you know, that uh, through our governor's office that we were probably gonna be shut down until at least the end of April. And as it turned out, we were, Arizona was, was basically shut down through March 15th. So you had the second quarter, April through June, you had half of it lost. In, in that instance. Now, um, and so looking at just the pure numbers, the the and the advantages that incumbency brings to a member of Congress, my the incumbent that I was challenging uh, really didn't have to didn't need that direct voter engagement to be able to uh, to be able to do things like fundraising and raise her name recognition. I as an incumbent, as a challenger, needed that that in-person engagement. That's not to say that we didn't move. You know, immediately we moved with with speed to put our campaign online, and um, and uh, uh, you know uh, to do things like everybody's doing now on you know all day talking on Zoom and things like that. I was actually quite proud of how quickly we adapted to that, and I feel like we did that better than any of the campaigns in Southern Arizona, including that of the incumbent that I was challenging. The problem was, is um, to defeat incumbents, you really need an effect, you need to be able to raise money, and, uh, and, and challengers can't do that just online or in auto mode like incumbents can. And I found, you know, in calling dozens of people a day, that, you know, and, 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 and this is very appropriate. Donors were more concerned, as they should be, about their personal health, their family's health, the health of their businesses. And of course, you know, for folks listening to this in real time, they'll understand that the stock market took a, a huge hit. And so people's personal financial security was very much at stake. And, and I even had more than one uh, donor say, Shay, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I'm supportive, you know, I want to help, but I can't really talk about politics right now. We've got, we've got other things happening here. This is it's going to seem in in future months. It's 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 going to seem looking back like well, of course we had to adapt, and, right. and, and those people would be right. But in the heat of the moment and in the campaign, I was forced with to answer the question: Do I still see a path to victory against the incumbent here? And under these circumstances, with sick, then then um, then more than uh, forty days of of sheltering in place, I was starting to see the chances of that. Uh, uh, decrease on a daily basis. So are you like a freshman college basketball star and one and done with congressional campaigns? I am not. I am not. So uh, now the question- I'm forcing an announcement? They didn't mean to. (laughs) So one of the reasons I'm here, as I mentioned, I'm I'm here on uh, Capitol Hill with my wife and she and I She's been such a, a tremendous asset and and so supportive of the campaign um, uh, up until now. Broke, I mean, I, I mean, it was like cutting off a finger to withdraw from the race, Bill. And um, but I and I dare say it may have broken uh, uh, it may have broken Shay's heart even more than it did. by and uh, but what wait, I want wait, can we just clarify for a second? Oh sure, oh, your wife Shay, yeah, also named Shay. <laughs> for our listeners who don't know yes and for uh, our for your listeners who don't know she's known as the fun the fun Shay so uh, uh, and, and it's absolutely apt but uh, in fact if, if you get a chance it's still online and I don't know how much longer it will be but my launch video for the campaign Shay plays a prominent uh, prominent role in that and in fact at the end of the launch video as you know Bill she says I'm Shea Stouts, and I approve this ad. And, and and I turn to her and say, "Wait a minute, think think that's my that's my line, honey." I like that. That was well done. I used to, used to tell people on the campaign trail, "I don't really care which Shea you vote for." <laughs> <laughs> it's just spell it right. Uh, so in, I want to head towards a conclusion here, but I wanted to specifically ask you, with your. Uh, vast experience, both as an advocate and now as a, a candidate. Do you have a particularly poignant piece of advice for a young professional who's thinking about entering either of those two careers? You know, the, the best, the best advice, the best advice I could, I, I, that I could possibly give to somebody wanting to get into, well, any, any area actually, it might be, but, it, but it, it, you know, identify what you're passionate about, what you're really interested about. The one, one thing, uh, uh, and, and then do that. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it sounds simple and it sounds so, uh, you know, it's such a cliche that it doesn't sound like it's original or unique, but I'm truly one of those folks who believes that if you, if you choose a career uh, and something that you're really passionate about and interested about, and that you would do, that you would be focused on anyway, then it's not work, as you know. It's 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 doing what you love. And uh, uh, we talked about my time with with Mo Udall, where the chief of staff came out of the office and said, you know, we don't have a defense LA anymore. Who wants to pick up the slack? And um, and I'm only. I'm, I'm only kidding a little bit when I said I ran over a couple of people to get that job. The, the, um, the, the thing is to know that about yourself, know what you're interested in, and then, you know, create the, the at least the possibility for the, for opportunities to happen to you or happen for you in that space. And so, um, that's, I think, really the fundamental key and, and, um, and that's what, what absolutely happened to me there. And I couldn't be more grateful uh, for, for it. And here it is, uh, you know, 40 years later, 30, 35 years later, I'm still talking about it, you know, so. Good for you. And on that note, I want to say thank you to our guest Bert, Shea Stoss, for joining us here on Any Proof Politics. And just remember, No matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, D.C., whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. (laughs) Thanks for this. Yeah, tell Shay hi. I sure will. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.